Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 17, The Impact of COVID-19 on Initial Teacher Education. Welcome back everyone to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching in this double bill episode which looks at the COVID assessment project and we're in part two now where we're going to look at how the Cardiff Partnership ITE programmes have responded to the research of the COVID assessment project. We're joined in this second episode or rejoined in this second episode with Professor Emma-Jane Milton. Welcome back. Thank you. And we've also got with us Dr Anna Bryant. Anna, you've been with us before in our episode uh, gosh, a while back now on Threshold Concepts. Welcome back. Thank you, Emma. So we're going to get straight into the detail now. And I think we're also joined today, Tom, by a a disembodied voice. (laughs) Yes. Dr Viv John, who is also a very good friend of the podcast. Listeners will probably remember her cracking interview on creativity uh, and uh, student music teachers. She has done a sterling job speaking to me a couple of days ago before the recording, just setting some of the context because we're taking a deep dive now into the world of initial teacher education, which has been a world in flux for quite some time. So Viv spoke to me briefly about the context in which we find ourselves now uh, as we are educating new members of the teaching profession. Just to give a little bit of context, our new initial teacher education programmes came into being in 2019 and that was after we made a successful bid to Welsh Government and EWC as part of the accreditation process in Wales, like all other universities around Wales in fact. And that process was the first in a series of really very significant educational reforms in Wales. Um, of which the new curriculum and and new um, professional standards and other aspects of professional learning have have since taken their course. But that um, accreditation around initial teacher education really kicked off that process. So in the creation of our partnership, there were certain kind of values and philosophies that we wanted to build in. So it was really based on the idea of um, co-construction with our partner schools and other partners, joint accountability. The centrality of research was really something that had a particular emphasis because we were really keen to really generate an idea of um, interrogating theory and practice. And central to all of that was our adoption of the model of of research-informed clinical practice. And to give a little bit more context on our clinical practice model, I'm going to pass over to Emma and she can tell us a little bit more. There she is, Dr Viv John. So, yeah, just to lead on from what Viv has told us there, we... And Anna, you you came to us sort of after we'd been through this process, didn't you? But you're you're probably you probably heard on the grapevine about us being stuck in a in a in a room multiple times with colleagues from schools, various different stakeholders, and it was a really rigorous process actually of trying to decide what model was going to be right for us. Um, since we'd kind of thrown everything out and we had the opportunity to to, to become reborn. And we opted for a research-informed clinical practice model of ITE, which 
aims for genuine partnership decisions about the design and the implementation of initial teacher education, as Viv just mentioned, genuine partnership between higher education institution and schools in its delivery, um, but also recognising that both sides bring really valuable knowledge and experience. And the pedagogical approaches and philosophy, I can't sort of emphasise enough how much of a departure this was from what we had before, where you could sort of characterise the divide of responsibilities as being quite stark. So certain types of knowledge production were done in, in certain places. So the school was the site for craft knowledge, for student teachers developing their craft knowledge. And the university was the place for theory. And it was that that real division. But a clinical practice model aims to bring those two worlds together. So the student teacher's time is therefore divided up slightly differently. There's less emphasis on lead teaching, large numbers of whole whole lessons again and again and again and again. That's a really important thing, but they are given and afforded more time in this model to reflect, to engage in research and inquiry. And there's much more emphasis on on bringing the world of theory and practice together um, in this kind of symbiotic relationship where you know they're not just doing the theory in university and doing the practice in school they're bringing those two together and trying to use one to interrogate the other um, and vice versa so this was massively challenging it still continues to be a huge challenge for us and for everybody that we work with in the partnership to try and understand what this means for us in in the way we work with student teachers the way we work with each other and engaging with research ourselves. Anna, it's probably a good point at this stage to say that we've got some big key priorities now because we've got this new model. Do you want to tell us about those? Yeah, absolutely, Emma. And I think, I guess, within this work, what we've really done then is use some of the evidence from the Research COVID Assessment Project. And we've really used that in order to inform our self-evaluation and our key priorities as a partnership. I guess one of the things we're really mindful that we're only one partnership, you know, um, and we've made sense of the of the data in a certain way. But one of the things we have done from the, the research project is that we've embraced the different perceptions that were evident in the report between perhaps schools and university colleagues and during COVID, which is probably natural. Um, and we've really used it as an important opportunity then for us to ask many questions. What we do then, what we we will be doing, is to use some illustrative examples from three of our strategic priorities. We have nine priorities uh, this year that we're working on as part of our partnership improvement plan. And um, I think we'll take three of those priorities then in its turn. So um, one of those priorities, which I'll start on now, is around to improve the consistency of assessment of student teachers in order to improve, really, the student teacher outcome. And just to provide the, the listener with some, I guess, context here, the, we've already heard um, from the previous episode that assessment in school had become narrowed, and the same was really reflected then with us in, in university and in an IT context. An example of this was perhaps the limited opportunities that our student teachers had, for example, to engage in things like the traditional GCSE examination cycle. And we knew during this period we had many challenges, really, in relation to the consistency of assessment, as perhaps, you know, us as a partnership and many other partnerships out there, we couldn't do face-to-face quality assurance visits, for example. So it's been really refreshing recently that we've been able to get back out into schools and to do some of that work. What I'll, I guess I'll do, I'll pull on one of those examples now, or two actually, of assessment and take you through what happened perhaps before COVID, 
during COVID and what, what the, did the research report tell us then? As we're aware, in Wales, we've got the new professional teaching leadership standards, which is really a fundamental shift in how the professional standards are conceived. As we're aware, I guess, they move from a threshold competence model to a more process-oriented professional learning holistic model. And prior to COVID, really, we, under the partnerships, I think, across Wales, we had some challenges with the standards as... For example, initially, they were written for teachers in the profession and not IT student teachers. They were also work in progress as that we had no agreed framework on how perhaps we should assess student teachers in relation to these. And I guess during COVID then what happened, we had schools and student teachers within our partnership. You know, they were asking for more support really around the professional teaching leadership standards. They wanted some of exemplification. There were questions around how do we track um, evidence against them. And... You know, within the report itself, what did it tell us? Well, it told us that across Wales, there was generally different perceptions and consensus of a shared understanding within these teaching and leadership standards, and perhaps how perhaps we approach the assessment of them alike and what they looked like in practice. So, one of the things that we've we sort of one of the key questions we asked ourselves as a partnership is, how, how do we go about then exemplifying some of these standard descriptors? but also re- remain true to that philosophy of being holistic and I- integrative as well. And I guess what we've done as a partnership is focus a particular project on the exemplification on the teaching and leadership standards. I know, Emma and Tom, you've been involved in some work, haven't you, in um, trying to move that body of work forward? Yeah, I, it, do you know, it's interesting because something that strikes me um, about maybe something that's fortuitous about these new standards is that one of the five areas of the standards is collaboration and it just struck me something that you mentioned in the episode beforehand was we're not going to come out of this on our own we need to come out of this together there's almost a gift in these new professional standards which yes you're right Anna we're trying to work with colleagues to to make sense of what they look like in practice But maybe because we've moved to this model, the silver lining is we've got a bit of a mandate to make sure that we're working together to make sense of of how we go forward. I agree, Emma. And I think what's really interesting to me reflecting on this conversation is is for IPDA Cymru, I ran some joint events um, in the autumn with the National Academy for Educational Leadership focused specifically on the professional standards for teachers, uh, for teaching and leadership. And I think what was so clear in those sessions was the enormous variability across Wales in terms of understandings and interpretations and the fact that you don't suddenly know how to do it. And where we had colleagues from schools who have been really grappling with them and trying to create these understandings within their schools really successfully in some cases, but also really acknowledging that this isn't necessarily happening in every school and to different to a different degree. So I think the opportunity to really work collaboratively, to develop these shared understandings across and within the partnership, really supports schools as well in grappling with these, because although they came out in 2017, mm. COVID happened when it did. And like we've already said, and Viv said so clearly, the ITE partnerships were only just taking off. And I think there's something really powerful about that. 
Has there been the time to develop some of these shared understandings that are so vital in terms of the ways of working for new teachers, but all teachers within the profession. It's also uh, quite a nice illustration of those points you were making in the previous episode about the way that assessment seems to have become uh, slightly thinner, perhaps slightly less rich as a result of the COVID pandemic. And we're talking about these professional teaching standards. And for people who are not enormously familiar with them, I suppose what, what we can say about them is that the older ones were, I mean, Anna described them as a threshold competence model. It, to caricature them, they were quite tick boxy. Can you do this? Yes. Can you do this? No. The newer standards are perhaps at best aspirational. And perhaps the flip side of that is perhaps a little bit harder to nail down in the detail. And it makes me think that perhaps a hollowing out of of pedagogy, a, a thinning out of assessment is pulling in the opposite direction to a set of standards that that is less easy to assess, that requires a much richer and more complex form of assessment. So we find ourselves in a difficult place. They are certainly aspirational, but there are elements of them that are opaque. Mm-hmm. And so... That underlines even more so the the importance of developing these shared understandings. Because there's phrases in some of them that you sit there and think, I genuinely have no idea what that means or looks like. And then you ask other colleagues, head teachers, teachers, other professors, academic colleagues, colleagues in Welsh Government, what does that actually look like? And nobody seems to know. And that's a bit of a worry if we're trying to work to evidencing something or embodying something within our practice if we don't really know what we're trying to achieve. And that kind of works, doesn't it, for serving teachers in a way. You can be aspirational if you've got QTS, or you can be more aspirational if you've got QTS. But for those of us that work in initial teacher education, you get this another clash between the need to be aspirational, but also the need for us to actually say at the end, yes, this person gets QTS, or no, they don't. And so we do, on our side of things, come up against that that really rather important yes or no moment. And so again, when working in the context of a research-informed clinical practice model, which, as we said, is all about working together, co-constructing together, again, we've got a gift there. So we're not having to do this on our own. We have got a project where we're trying to develop a shared understanding of some of the elements of the standards. Um, But I think, Anna, the thing that is probably important to talk about next as well is that of course they're not just training to meet the QTS standards they're also training um, at master's level so we found some interesting things and actually some positive things that we changed as as a result of of COVID um, that we're probably going to keep aren't we? Absolutely I think so and I think one of the examples I'll draw one of the illustrative examples I guess from COVID which is related to that first priority around the capacity of assessment is around our PGC research assignment Prior to um, COVID, the focus of assessment was on empirical base, inquiry and action research. During COVID, as empirical work in schools was not possible, um, this assessment was then changed to a critically annotated bibliography (laughs) bibliography with a visual summary. And I guess what was particularly pleasing, and it was unexpected really, was the impact of the quality of the stand within the standards and marks of the student teachers of this piece of work. It was uh, notably higher than the previous year. And I guess the impact as well um, on our schools, and this was evident within our strategic board. And some of this was captured as well in the COVID research project. You know, we had some positive aspects of sort of uh, some of these changed research assignments. But I think equally in the report, we have to remember that across 
Uh, there were some questions as well as how did we ensure that the alternative research assignment was really meaningful because I'm not sure it was perhaps in all contexts. And I guess this was a key challenge for not only our partnership but nationally and internationally as well because our student teachers couldn't get into schools to get some of that empirical work and some of that inquiry-based work as well, which is you know fundamental to them uh, understanding their classroom practice. Some of the things that we thought about then was, well, how do we keep the good features of this PGC assignment but ensure also we address the accreditation needs and ensure that the student teachers get the relevant experience in research inquiry to enable them to enter the profession as confident classroom-based inquirers. And one of the things we've looked at doing then this year is that we've kept that critically annotated bibliography as the first assignment with the visual summary. And so they've been able to present back to lead partnership schools, to senior leadership, to governors, etc. So there's been it's been able to filter through the school a little bit more. But equally, we've made sure that there's the, the element of inquiry that's evident in the second assignment. So it's much more balanced across the board. And our student teachers by the end of developing some of those key skill sets that they need in order to enter the profession. But I know Tom and Emma, you've sort of developed from the research assignment and, and there's been a really good dissemination opportunity hasn't there to um, share further afield as well. Yeah they, they, they were good enough that we felt that we could produce the research bites strand of the podcast and, and I think this assignment we really can't underestimate the importance of this assignment thing because I've been here long enough to know of a time when the PGC assignments were very much seen as a university thing and, and schools just didn't see it as their their thing at all and, and we always have to keep an eye out for the opening up of a device between the school and the university context it's, it's always a, a thing that we're, we're fighting against and this model that that attempts to interrogate theory and practice or craft knowledge in the school context and the university context you know, we have to bring those things close together and, and the assignment strangely was a was a really simple way of doing that because that's seen as very relevant to schools now we're seen as doing something for the schools also means the students are more motivated to do them as well So perhaps we need to just take a little detour here because the next priority that we're going to talk about is all about this idea of interrogating theory and practice and and everybody in our partnership having an in-depth understanding of of how to facilitate that and how to do it themselves, um, especially when undertaking research and inquiry. And I wonder, Emma Jane, if you're able to just give us a sense of how monumental a shift is that? For the profession in Wales because I know that you've done a lot with us and continue to work with us about the notion of inquiry and how we can begin to to bring that into our into our practice but this is quite new to some members of the profession am I right? Absolutely and I think I think it's not that colleagues haven't thought about their practice colleagues are deeply reflective about their practice in school you can barely help to be anything but when you're confronted with pupils and learners and you're wondering why they do certain things or how that has happened for a certain group of pupils so colleagues have always been deeply reflective I I genuinely believe that in terms of their practice but having a lens to consider it to consider the thing that you're grappling with that you're exploring that you really want to think about or inquire into more deeply that's where research perhaps has played a, a lesser role historically um, for us in, in education in Wales. And that's not to say there aren't pockets of where that's been done really successfully. Most certainly that's true. But as a consistent practice, as a way of being, as a way of thinking, having an inquiry stance when you, you consider your practice and what's happening in your classroom and for your learners, 
that's been much less prevalent. So I think it has and is a monumental shift. And I think the hard thing is shifting from where you do it because you have to do it to doing it because it's a way of working, a way of being, a way of thinking, and it's embedded in every way you look at things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it came up in in the previous episode, didn't it, about this notion of being an adaptive expert um, as a teacher because schools are complex sites and... You know, we've learned, if we've learned anything from the pandemic, it's that, you know, you can be in the middle of reform and then something come inside, swipe you and you've got even more change. And, you know, even for, for a beginning teacher in the classroom, it's so much more of that is, is brand new um, and they revert back to being a novice again. And that can be quite challenging, you know, so there's, there's all of that going on. And we know that, you know, teaching is a complex business. So... Bringing it back to our programmes, theory and practice and research and inquiry as a vehicle for those things to happen was relatively new. And, and on practical terms, we've gifted our student teachers with time, with time and space on clinical practice when they're on their placements in schools to do research and inquiry. But without giving them sufficient guidance, without having the sufficient support from their school-based mentor from their senior mentor they could use that time sort of insufficiently so pre-covid we knew because this was brand new we needed to invest a significant amount of professional learning time uh, amongst ourselves as university tutors and with our school-based colleagues to really understand what does that look like what does that look like in real terms what kind of activities can our student teachers do and what does theory and practice look like it how do we facilitate this but we got really distracted, didn't we, from that, that agenda because the pandemic hit and we had to consider how we were going to run an ITE programme or ITE programmes online in, in a virtual clinical practice model, which, you know, was just brand new to us. So we know that we've been slowed down in our efforts to get a really good, strong, shared understanding of research and inquiry. But... It's definitely on the agenda, and this is why we've got one of these priorities. So, Tom, we did find some actual, some interesting things that came out of uh, of the pandemic that I think, again, uh, are ways of working and particularly teaching and learning to facilitate research and inquiry and theory into practice that I think we'll probably keep. Yeah, I think so. We talk about COVID keepers, don't we? That's our little phrase that we use. And there are some certain COVID, let's throw them out the window and never see them again things, which we've also talked about. But yeah, the use of digital technology, we we really were in our infancy in doing that. I mean, there were crazy people like me making the podcast with you, Emma, pre-COVID for a couple of years. But we all suddenly realised that it was possible to create videos and, and to bring in guest speakers virtually and, and to disseminate things. I think one of the beauties of it is once you do create a resource that's a digital resource, you can then give it to everybody. Under the old system, pre-COVID, it might have been that we did some sort of lecture or session with the students, but then our school colleagues wouldn't be able to see it because it was happening in in person in the university and then we were asking colleagues to jump in the car and go out to these schools and disseminate information you know just just kind of do death by powerpoints on a little screen with people in in an office in school and it wasn't a great use of anybody's time whereas now we can disseminate the same stuff that we gave to the students and when we do thank goodness jump in a car and go and speak to school colleagues again in school 
we can use that time for a discussion rather than an info blast. So it's a far better and more productive use of the time. Anna's mentioned the podcast, the research bites. We've done our broadcast webinars. We've we've done some really good stuff um, as a result of the skills that we gained during COVID. I know that we talked about the vital importance of doing things face-to-face in a room. But there are some things that you can do um, digitally, but vitally you need to then use what you gained in terms of time and space to do more face-to-face in a room. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So, you know, bringing it back to a point I made earlier, we really want to focus on that relationship between the mentor and the student-teacher. So the mentor is in a position where they don't feel without um, if they are not active researchers themselves or if they, you know, are very long out of academia themselves but still feel equipped and, and confident and competent to develop what we call clinical reasoning, which is that that idea where we are interrogating theory and practice. And we're trying to make a decision about how to go forward, not just from a position of impulse and a reactionary response, one that is rooted in you know various types of knowledge. So knowledge that we're getting from the learners, knowledge that we're getting from our reflections, knowledge that we're getting from literature, if we've got time to factor that in. And we're bringing all of that to bear on the decisions that we're making. And a mentor can be a big, you know, a big influence on on encouraging that. What are your thoughts on that, Anna? I think absolutely that, you know, the relationship with the mentor is really, really important. I'm not sure with, you know, in terms of encouraging that dialogue over inquiry and over research. I'm not sure we're there yet. We are on a journey, I think. But I think in whichever way we can to encourage those discussions or to ensure that our mentors are discussing with our student teachers around their research assignments and are encouraging this culture, really, of professional inquiry. And we've got to you know, push forward from that sense. Emma. I think it's really interesting, the, the idea of clinical reasoning. Um, I sometimes call it educative mentoring. And I think for me, why that's so super important is it's about building confidence to question and not to question to be annoying and critical and a pain in the bottom, but to question to say, is this right for my learners in my classroom, in my context right now? And I think that's the thing for me that all this all comes back to is there isn't a blueprint There isn't a handbook that we can give to everybody about how to do it because every learner is unique, every member of staff is unique and the context within which they're working is complex and dynamic and doesn't just stay the same. So things come along all the time that disrupt and it's about being that adaptive expert both as a student teacher, as a a qualified teacher and also as a mentor to be able to help people think about those situations and respond in the moment but in an informed considered way and I suppose coming back to one of the findings from the COVID assessment report that really struck us and and probably made me feel a bit emotional in the first instance was that response about whether the students ultimately had had uh, the same experience and uh, as good an experience as they would uh, had the pandemic not hit or not was that generally speaking that university-based educators tutors felt that 
things hadn't been too bad, and I'm paraphrasing now, whereas school-based mentors and colleagues and teacher educators did feel that there was a significant impact. And I wonder if that's perhaps because, and I'm just speculating here, that we are maybe a bit more convinced by the power of research and inquiry at this stage because we have been, you know, we're a little bit further along, perhaps maybe in our own research and inquiry journeys, perhaps. Whereas we might have a lot of colleagues on the, on in the school-based part of the programme who are very used to previous approaches to ITE, which were very much about racking up time in the classroom teaching, 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 hours at the chalk face, which is very much what we had before. Um, and that's not necessarily a, you know, a, a bad thing that that's their perception. And I might be wrong, but... I think what it demonstrates is that we need to spend time working with school-based colleagues and, and, and they with us, trying to think about what this now uh, can do for the student-teacher's experience in comparison to what we had before and why creating time and space for research and inquiry is valid and valuable. Because we hear this a lot. We do hear school, some school-based colleagues saying, you know, they really don't need to be spending time outside of teaching they need to be teaching 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 so we've got work to do here not to convince but to co-construct to co-understand what the opportunities there are um, in this model compared to what we had before I think so, um, Amanda. It's also about having those professional discussions with our school colleagues, which, of course, we couldn't get out there for two years to our schools. Yes, we communicated with schools through virtual platforms, which were useful for information. But I think it's so crucial that we do get out there and have those discussions because research and inquiry can be seen on on a big continuum. You know, it doesn't have to be, it's not research away from the classroom. It it can be embedded within the classroom through observations, through reading, you know. So it's about developing that understanding further. Mm. And I think going back to one of your points where you mentioned around the different perceptions, I think that's really interesting. I think you were spot on there. It's probably because of perhaps we have different priorities, um, as you said, in terms of the classroom based time but I think equally it's gone back to the COVID report in terms of the context of when this happened this happened or a lot of this happened when we were in deep in lockdown and perhaps where we as a university college could you know we could foresee or we were a little bit more confident in using virtual clinical practice our school-based colleagues you know perhaps weren't sure it wasn't as much of a priority and they perhaps couldn't you know what's coming next and how can we do this well of course they haven't been in face to face as things improved a little bit with the, with the pandemic, our student teachers in that first year of that full year, year of the COVID did get back out in, into classroom and did, you know, didn't have perhaps enough, but, you know, things did improve, certainly. So, um, but I think it's really important that we embrace those differences and we think, you know, hang on, let's not pretend everything's great. You know, let's, let's embrace those differences and see, let's get out there and have some of those discussions to further develop our shared understanding around this. And I think one of the most basic things to get across is the research and inquiry can be an in-classroom activity. Because I think there's been a tendency to see the word research and assume it means you have to settle down with a good book, <laughs> which it can be. Uh, but but a lot of really powerful research and inquiry happens in your own classroom. 
Let's move on to our third priority now. And this is where we bring in Dr. Viv again, because she uh, spoke to me earlier about this one. And and the third priority uh, was relating to the fact that we needed to look at these new roles and responsibilities that we have in the Cardiff Partnership. Many of them were created. Some of them were re-clarified. And so I spoke to Viv a little bit earlier about uh, the challenges and opportunities there. So Viv, there's a huge number of roles and responsibilities within the partnership linking school and university. And our third major priority and and things that we've learnt from this project are to do with understanding the nature of those roles. Yeah, that's right, Tom. So one of the major findings in the COVID assessment report was that school partners and university colleagues had some differing perspectives on the impact that COVID had had on our student teachers' learning and their outcomes. And I suppose that that led us to to reevaluate many things. One of those was whether the roles that were vital to the student teachers' learning experiences, roles such as the university tutor, the mentor, the senior mentor, the IT coordinator and the research champion, it, it started to get us thinking whether these roles were indeed established enough and whether we had a sufficient enough and effective enough shared understanding of what these roles were. So we reflected on how between June 2019, which was the end of our old programmes, and, and September 2019, when the start of the new programmes came into being, within that newly formed Cardiff Partnership, you know, we reflected that we had to really, really swiftly hit the ground running to try and enact what were really some significant changes. And those changes firstly happened at a sort of an operational level. You know, we had these new roles, we had uh, roles that needed to be redefined, we had new systems, new protocols. So there was all that kind of operational kind of business going on but secondly and and probably more importantly there was also a big shift on a cultural level where everyone in the partnership had to understand and and really quickly acclimatize to this new ethos of co-construction shared accountability the aspiration to be research informed in everything we did and I, and I really don't think we can underestimate how incredibly challenging that was for all of us involved, partly because of the speed that that happened, but partly because it was such a big change in culture for, for all of us. Um, and this was before COVID even happened, you know, before COVID was even a thing. So I think it's important for us to remember that we were still pre-COVID um, up to March 2020, a very young partnership. We'd only been in operation for about six months. We were very much this work in progress as a partnership and as an IT model. We were by no means the finished article and we still probably had quite an immature understanding of both you know, that operational dimension, but also that cultural dimension um, that, that, you know, was really sort of central to the partnership. And then, of course, everything changed again because the pandemic hit and that presented us with, you know, even more obstacles in us trying to develop our shared understanding and, and for all that to become embedded. So I suppose when you reflect on that period of time, it's not surprising that we had these different perspectives and different understandings, you know, from the different factions of the partnership, from from a school perspective and from a university perspective. And so the COVID report, I guess, helped us to understand that we weren't as far forward as as we might have been or, or possibly where we thought we were. And it revealed that we had 
probably some way to go in establishing this new culture, these new ways of behaving, these ways of working as a partnership. But I suppose when we reflected on that, we realised that that's okay and that we mustn't be disheartened that we're not as far forward as we thought we were going to be. And the report has allowed us to remind ourselves that establishing and maintaining and growing a new partnership for an initial teacher education with these really big big ambitions and, and aspirations within a Welsh education system that's changing massively, you know, that's really complex. And it's not going to be something that works perfectly within a few years. COVID or not, you know, even if we hadn't had COVID, it would still have been, you know, a, a big challenge to, to move, you know, quickly. But we're moving in the right direction and, and we've already picked up the momentum again um, from this September and we've made good good strides. So, you know, we've got to be really encouraged that we're moving in the right direction. And then just finally, Tom, I think what the report also helped us to realise is that although all those roles uh, are important, um, you know, the, the senior mentor, the mentor, the IT coordinator, the research champion, they're all important and they're all key in supporting our student teachers. But what we realised, I think, was that the role of the university tutor that we didn't have in the old programme, and they're members of university staff that are linked to specific schools, and they work very closely with school staff and student teachers, you know, within you know their, their clinical practice. That role has emerged as, as becoming really essential, not only in potentially bridging the gap for students between their university learning and their and their school learning which of course is really important but it's also really crucial in bridging this gap between the operational and the cultural dimension of the partnership and I think if we're going to grow as a partnership and have this shared understanding and be able to successfully enact our vision and our values we've really got to pay, pay close attention to this role and you know really understand its potential and, and sort of give time and space for that to grow and, and, and to do the job that it potentially can do. It's really important isn't it just to bear in mind that the scale of the challenge that we were undertaking in creating this new partnership even as you say taking Covid out of the equation. So what were the questions that, that have come out of this then for us this priority? Thanks, Tom. Yeah, so so um, out of this priority, we worked on three kind of work in progress questions, if you like. The first one was, how can we further test, develop and refine systems so that roles can be maximised? So I guess that question is really addressing that sort of operational dimension that I talked about before, systems, protocols, that sort of thing. But our other two questions really started to focus far more on the people and the philosophies and, and, and the culture, you know, sitting behind all of that so those questions were we are starting to put more emphasis on mentor selection should we and do we place the same emphasis on selecting um, the people who do our other roles you know so just really making sure that those people who who take up these important roles really do understand the culture that we're trying to develop and then the final question was how can we reconceptualize the role and professional learning of the university tutor to enhance the partnership and avoid two worlds pitfalls um, so that's a quote by Smith and Avitsian um, and they talk about two worlds pitfalls in sort of the, the gap that students can fall in between their university learning and their um, school learning but I'm using that that quote really in the context of this um, two dimension you know that this sort of operational and cultural dimension and just making sure that we connect those two dimensions to make sure then that our, our partnership um, you know grows on, on a really firm footing. So that was Viv talking to me uh, before this recording session took place. 
One of the things that's really come out clearly from this, and we've mentioned this several times now across our two episodes, is the vital importance of getting in a room together with people. For all the tech that we've we've discovered during COVID, I think in a funny sort of way, we, we're even more sure about the fact that teaching and learning is a thing that you do in a room with a person. We had some fascinating stuff in the previous episode about the importance of that. But just to kind of pull out another one, which I, I know we discussed uh, in the last episode quite a bit as well, it's this idea of the impact that COVID has had on both pupils and new members of the profession. And one of the things that absolutely grabbed me in the report was the fact that there is a diminished appetite for risk. Um, there is a sense that things have become high stakes. And I know we were talking uh, in the previous session about how this has affected teachers in terms of them grabbing onto summative forms of assessment. But we've heard that pupils have come back from their home learning into school um, with this kind of fear permeating what they're doing, the sense that what they're doing is high stakes, the sense that they don't want to take a risk. But also looking at the the new teachers, the, the student teachers that came through um, into the profession during the pandemic, they also feel that they've missed out on something and they may also not have that appetite for risk. I mean, this was a fascinating parallel between pupils as learners and, and student teachers as learners. Of course, the danger with that, I suppose, is that they grab onto some some island of safety, which could take the form of an experienced teacher around them who they might just feel that they need to copy because they're doing stuff and it appears to work. And I guess that's dangerous because that is almost the polar opposite of what, Emma Jane, you were describing in terms of what research and inquiry and clinical reasoning can do for you in terms of being a questioning practitioner. Yeah, and I think that's you know, I think that's exactly it. And and that that anxiety for new becoming teachers has always been there in terms of risk taking and challenging established orthodoxies and ways of working. We all remember experiences that we've had as professionals, as as beginning teachers, where you come up with a good idea, what you think is a good idea, and somebody on the staff says to you, No, no, we've tried that already. We do it like this in this school. And immediately that's shut down. And so we, we have to think about how we are nurturing our probably the, the current and the last three cohorts of teachers as an absolute minimum. Those who qualified just before COVID, the COVID cohorts, the current cohort, and potentially still to come because we're still in it. And I'm really clear about that. I think we're still in it. I think we have to think about what we're doing to nurture those beginning teachers, to think about risk-taking, to think about how they use research and inquiry in a questioning way of working, to explore their practice, to really consider their pupils' learning experiences, and having a pupil and learner orientation at the heart of what they're doing. I think that's vital, and it does sit in sharp contrast with what we found out in the report in terms of this diminished appetite for risk-taking at every level, both within pupils but also within teachers. And you kind of understand it. You kind of understand it when you go, but these children have one education. So we have got a tricky balance here all of the time by making sure we give them what they need in terms of the currency to go forward in their, in their um, beyond school, 
but also making sure they have the rich learning opportunities that maintain curiosity and a love of learning going forward. And I'm going to use the word that's never far away from the teaching profession, and that's the word accountability, the accountability culture. And you're right, you know, the, the responsibility is huge as a teacher because, you know, that lesson's gone if it's if it crashes and burns. But we have got new teachers who have a diminished appetite for risk. We do have pupils who need looking after we do have the small matter of a new curriculum heading in our direction um, based on subsidiarity with, with open questions about how we quality assure that. Do we have any tools in our toolbox that can potentially help us navigate these choppy waters we find ourselves in? I think so. And I think this is where research and inquiry might come into its own if we give mentors and student teachers the necessary support and strategies to sort of get a purchase on research and inquiry and use that time um, productively. Two of the things that uh, in a previous episode we've we've tackled these with uh, two of our colleagues who were on our mentor uh, mentor professional learning team are how to sort of get the most out of team teaching and how to get the most out of professional learning conversations just as two strategies for almost kind of scaffolding the risk but also giving an invitation to inquire and to reflect um, but in a sort of purposeful focused um, and structured way I think it's it's by using what is afforded to the student teachers within that research and inquiry time by giving the mentors the confidence, the professional learning so that they know how to direct the student teachers in that time to begin with because, you know, they are going to need some guidance uh, at the start. For example, you know, what to focus on in a, in a team teaching uh, arrangement and how they're going to best use that time and when the the mentor is going to sort of release um, some of the the support so that the, the student teacher can take those sort of measured risks and be able to reflect on whether they worked or whether they didn't and be able to ask the right questions to cause them to unpick and interrogate um, their practice. So as Anna said a moment ago, we, we're, we're not there yet. We've got a long way to go before we get there. But I think that inquiry and research are the vehicles and mentors and Link University tutors, as, as Viv mentioned earlier on, research champions. We're all the people who are there to hopefully help support the student teacher so that they can become those adaptive experts by using research and inquiry and inquiry stance being part of their new identity. I think what you're saying is really spot on, Emma, but I think for me what this demands is that we really understand and this is the beauty of an IT partnership and working in this way with a clinical practice model. We really understand what's going on in schools now. We talked yesterday outside of our podcast about conversations with teachers and head teachers who are surviving. We mentioned the word surviving in the podcast. And so absolutely the practices that you've articulated and outlined are where we want to be. But whether schools have the capacity right now to be enabling that risk-taking and conversations and ways of working and team teaching and professional dialogues and conversations may be a different question. And it's not that that isn't where we want to be and where we want to go, but we also have to be realistic mm -hmm. with what's happening in situ, on the ground, every day, 
for teachers and, and, and their pupils. And I guess this does raise a question for me constantly, Tom, about how we create these spaces and tackle a new curriculum within the less than six months for primary schools. Um, it, it seems to me like a significant challenge and one where we need to think about where those spaces are being created to enable that to be successful. Absolutely, I think, Emma, you know, really crucial point there in terms of that empathy we've got with our schools because we, we've heard several times, you know, that this are not out of it. The challenges this year have been, you know, worse or more difficult or different from previous. So I think we've got to keep that in mind and we, in order to keep everybody on the bus and keep everybody on our journey with us in a co-constructive, collaborative way. I think also it's probably about just keeping that culture um, and the culture of professional learning and, and us modelling as well, you know, from a leadership perspective, from from a university perspective. I think one of the things in reflection we've noticed is that we've been so busy in reactive mode and we've had so many operational issues to, to deal with that where are we doing our professional learning? And we've got to ensure that we've got spaces for professional learning within the staff to make sure that, you know, that we're modelling that and we can model it then, you know, to schools when the time is appropriate. So to keep everybody as well in as a sense of empowerment, motivated, because people are run down as well with what they've been through over the last two years. So I think we've got to encourage that as well. And you're so right, because having the time and the space to do that is nurturing, is empowering and sustains people. So actually it's vital. And and um, a colleague of mine, Professor Caroline Daly, uses an image in some of her training all the time, which which is about, or, or, or her professional learning with teachers, which is about putting the ox- oxygen mask on first. And that's what we have to do, all of us. And research and inquiry enables that, although it's daunting when you think about it, because do you want to do that first? Or do you want to look after everybody else and everything else first? But if you do that first, you are more better equipped to go on and serve your pupils, your colleagues, and work in a way that is sustainable over time. So circling this background now, because you've just mentioned this nurturing space that we need um, to create, and, and you come to us with, with two hats on, your eminent professor hat, but also your director of IPDA Cymru hat. And we talked about that at the beginning of the last episode, but we ha- we've, we've d- dived into the detail of all this research now. And we need to come back and ask, the IPDA, is it a, is it a nurturing space for these new teachers? Does it have a role to play in, in helping to do some of these things that we would like? I think IPDA Cymru absolutely does that. Of course, the International Association too, but at, but at a more local level for Wales, I think we strive to be a super friendly organisation. We create space for critical discussion about policy and practice. We are absolutely all about promoting and supporting professional learning. There are opportunities to consider external perspectives, whether that's through research or international collaborations and conversations. And we are very wedded to having an apolitical voice. And that's, that's at the core of what we do. It's about creating a space for people's views and perspectives to be heard and to be valued and not to be, for, for colleagues not to be concerned and, and scared of taking risks about their views and their thoughts um, about what's going on in the profession for us in Wales and how we recover and support each other through all of this as we go forward to meet the new challenges that inevitably 
are coming our way. And we put on a range of events across the year. We have what we call water cooler conversations, those corridor conversations about a theme or, an, or a topic. And we, we take those in terms of what's hot at the moment, what people want to be talking about at the moment. And they're very informal and they're a chat for, till 4.45. And people come and contribute and, and, and we understand people's different views and perspectives about those ideas. We're also launching just after Easter our new read and chat events where we focus on a particular paper, both an academic paper but an accompanying blog or webinar or more digestible, sometimes accessible piece of material on the same idea and we chat with the authors and we chat and understand what that means for each other. We have webinars on a regular basis. I've said we've done them with the National Academy. We've privileged enough to do one with Cardiff Metropolitan as part of the Cardiff Partnership. We've done them on inclusion. We've done them on the COVID assessment project. We've done them on online education. So we try and tailor and stitch those. Creativity is another one that we've focused on. The other thing that IPDA Cymru and and being a member of IPDA gives you is access to two peer-reviewed academic journals. And that sounds scary sometimes but it also means you have direct access to good quality literature which you can dip into you can digest we have two journals professional development and education and practice contemporary issues in in practitioner education so really very focused on this particular area the best way to get in touch is to follow us on twitter at ipda cymru or of course go to our web pages where you can um look at the options for membership and they're pretty competitive and particularly good if you want to join as part of an organisation with a couple of memberships altogether. But we're just a really super friendly place and we, we're, we're up for open discussion and debate. Um, so you're all very welcome, whether you're a student teacher, whether you're a head teacher, whether you're an IE, ITE colleague or you're in an allied profession but thinking about education. Thank you very much, Emma-Jane. And I guess that's a, a, a great big something interesting and something to try, which are our, our two regular short slots. So, Professor Emma-Jane Milton, Dr Anna Bryant, Dr Alex Morgan, Dr Viv John, Tom Breeze. <laughs> Why not, Emma Thayer? It's been a cast of thousands, hasn't it? Joined also by the uh, School of Sport who decided to carry out some kind of bonding activity right outside our window (laughs) mid-recording. So thanks to the School of Sport and Health Sciences for providing the ambient noise. Makes a change from Power Tools and Seagulls and we'll be back in a fortnight. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guests this episode were Professor Emma-Jane Milton, Dr Anna Bryant and Dr Viv John, and thanks to them for taking part. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blandford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. You can find us on Twitter at TalkTeachingPod and the IPDA at ipda.org.uk. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.